on the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the big events shaping the region. This week, we'll be looking at Turkey's relations with Ukraine, ahead of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's meeting with Russia's Vladimir Putin that is set to take place in the Black Sea port of Sochi on August 5th. Today, the first ship carrying grain left Ukraine's blockaded Black Sea port of Odessa under a deal brokered by Turkey and the United Nations earlier this month. Here to discuss all of these developments with us today is Yevgenia Gaber, a former Ukrainian diplomat who served in Turkey and who is currently a senior non-resident fellow at Carleton University in Canada the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. Welcome to our show, my dearest Yevgenia. Thank you. Hi, Marine. Thank you for having me. So today uh, we had the first ship leave Odessa loaded with grain. That's quite a miracle, no, almost, because we were also sort of pessimistic about this ever working. So um, how do you feel about this? Do you think this is going to work? You've written extensively about it. You've laid out all the caveats. Uh, What does today's news tell us looking forward? Well, I would not say that we're pessimistic. I would say that we are realistic uh, because uh, dealing with Russia, you always have to be cautious about how far this uh, so-called goodwill of Russia goes. Uh, Obviously, to the credit of Turkey and the United Nations and all diplomats and experts and uh, members of parliament, everyone who um, has been involved in these uh, talks, grain deal and so on. Uh, To their credit, it worked, uh, even though we remember how Russia started shelling and bombing the Odessa seaport uh, just uh, 20 something hours uh, after the uh, grain initiative was signed. But yet again, even though we have this um, vessel today leaving the seaport of Odessa and now to the best of my knowledge already um, having reached the uh, international waters, Uh, I would still doubt uh, how long we can uh, proceed with this and uh, whether we only have this case as a showcase of uh, Russian uh, kind of constructive uh, position and stance on the issue. And it will be followed by many other vessels uh, because now we have something like 17 other ships waiting in Odessa. Or this will will just be kind of one example uh, showing that Russia can sometimes agree on some deals, but afterwards will still uh, face some uh, kind of provocations, disruptions, attacks, and so on. So today uh, there is this cautious optimism in Ukraine, obviously because this is also important for our economy, obviously because this is also important for uh, our grain producers. But at the same time, I think it's really important to understand one thing. Uh, For the whole world, the uh, Russian um, grain war is mostly about blockade of uh, the Ukrainian uh, Black Sea ports and about disruption of supply chains. For Ukraine, uh, Russian grain terrorism is much more than that. It's about setting fire to our fields of sunflowers and wheat and corn. 
It's about destroying our infrastructure, including logistical infrastructure, including agricultural infrastructure. It's about shelling on our silos, wheat storages, looting Ukrainian grain from the occupied territories and then uh, selling them to other countries. It's about um, very often forcefully making farmers on the occupied territories to sell their grain, their corn, their wheat, just for nothing, almost for free. And even such things, uh, which no one, I would probably say no one almost except for Ukrainians know is like um, destroying uh, seed selection institutes, which have uh, very rare samples of different types of uh, grain, which are uh, unique and which cannot be restored. It's about even killing uh, some figures and uh, important people in this sphere of agriculture and logistics. And just the recent example, while the whole world was talking about Elenivka war crimes and executions of Ukrainian prisoners of war by Russia, at the same time, we had attack on Mykolaiv region of Ukraine. And then um, a hero of Ukraine, uh, a person who's named um, Alexei Vadatutsky, uh, he was killed in his own uh, house and he was um, owner and the founder of the Nibulon uh, agro uh, industrial company, which is world famous and which is uh, among uh, most important uh, agro traders in the world. And then we had these uh, statements from, from the Russian side that finally we have him uh, killed so we can cross him out of our lists and our sanctions list and the next will follow. So this is basically about assassination even of um, these people who are important. That's why for us, yes, it's important. Yes, the very fact that we have this uh, ship today um, leaving the seaport of Odessa without any incident, it's fine. But there is so much to be done there. And still, uh, I would say that we cannot trust Russia even after this. So, you know, of course, I, I understand why you're being so sort of cautious about the sort of um, success that uh, awaits us or failure. But why do you think Russia even agreed in the first place to allow this to happen? Because uh, one of our previous guests who also follows these issues quite closely, Yurik Ushuk, he was convinced that Russia would never hand Turkey such a diplomatic victory. Was this a diplomatic victory for Turkey? And if so, why did Russia um, go along with it? Why does uh, Turkey matter so much to Russia? Uh, well, I have two answers to this uh, question. One uh, about Russia, the other one about Russian-Turkish relations. Uh, obviously, it's not all about uh, Russian uh, perception of the Turkish diplomatic success. Uh, I would say that Russia now desperately needs, if not peace talks, then at least a tactical pause uh, to regroup its forces on the ground. If we look at the dynamics in Ukraine, uh, especially on the southern direction with Kherson and Zaporizhia regions where Ukrainians are trying to start counter offensive and uh, they are partially successful in certain directions in certain regions. Russia is also um, outmanned, outgunned. So it has to uh, secure this kind of um, 
lowering uh, dynamics and tensions of the conflict uh, just so that it would be able to regroup and then attack again. So for that purpose, of course, it's important to, uh, to have this time kind of, again, so-called gesture of goodwill that Russia is not attacking. Second, it's about information uh, war and it's about war of narratives. Uh, obviously, this war uh, had been completely lost by Russia before the grain deal and especially after the attacks on the Odessa seaport. So it had to uh, still show that it's a state that can be at the negotiation table and that cares about the nations and countries of uh, Africa, of the Middle East and so on. Uh, just remember Lavrov's uh, recent visit to many countries in, um, in Africa, his Africa tour, uh, where he was uh, actually playing this blame game and putting all blame on Ukraine, on the Western countries for sanctions, for uh, shortages of uh, agricultural products and wheat. So now obviously Russia has to show at least something to sell it to other countries showing that Russia cares and Russia sticks to the agreements, which obviously it doesn't. Uh, and it, 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 there is, uh, of course, another thing, and that's about Russian-Turkish relations, which are anything but, uh, um, but friendship and anything but partnership. Uh, we've all witnessed how uh, President Putin actually humiliated President Erdogan by uh, attacking the uh, infrastructure of Odessa seaport the next day after the agreement uh, brokered by Erdogan had been signed. But at the same time, there are so uh, many other issues to be discussed, including uh, dynamics in Syria, where both countries are now you know, engaged in these uh, negotiations on whether Turkey is going or not to launch its operation, transborder operation, and so on. Uh, it's also about military and technical cooperation. We just heard these uh, recent statements from Putin and a couple of other uh, high-rank officials in Russia saying that they would be very much for uh, developing this military and technical cooperation with Turkey, including on Bayraktars and all kinds of combat UAVs and so on. So obviously, Russia also knows its limits. You just raise the stakes, you escalate, and then you de-escalate. So this uh, strategy of escalation for the sake of de-escalation, that's what we've seen now. So Russia showed it can attack, and then it shows it actually can be kind of uh, willing to implement the agreement that uh, have been reached. But again, I'm pretty sure, and here I'm pessimistic, that it's not going to last like this for ages. Uh, there might be a couple of more vessels coming, and then there is no guarantee, obviously no security guarantees, that Russia will not um, have any kind of false flag operation uh, just, you know, exploding some uh, vessels, something, and then putting all blame on Ukraine, saying something like, you see, Russia tried to be constructive. We welcomed the first vessel leaving Ukraine, but these Ukrainians, for example, or whatever, NATO missile or something, they just hit another vessel. So it's all about Ukrainians uh, who are trying to uh, take the whole world as hostages in this food crisis, which is as usual, that would be kind of the opposite from what has been truth. But uh, that means that that might be tactical decision just for now, and especially before the meeting in Sochi between Erdogan and uh, Putin. So before the- Okay, so I'm just going to jump in right there and ask you what you think will come out of that meeting and what does Ukraine want 
to come out of that meeting because we do know that Turkey is actually quite keen for this war to end. Uh, one would assume that would be for humane hum reasons, but equally because Turkey is very badly affected, its economy is very badly affected by this war and the president is facing re-election. His ratings have gone down because of the terrible economic situation in, in Turkey. Uh, do you think that sort of some kind of a ceasefire will be on his agenda and how would Ukraine view that, what expectations does Ukraine have of Erdogan from this meeting? Um, well, uh, it's difficult to uh, speak on behalf of Ukraine, of course, because I would say that there are many different uh, groups inside Ukraine, even among experts, someone being more hawkish and uh, really, um, you know, ringing uh, warning bells saying that uh, this uh, triangle of Russia, Turkey and Iran uh, is nothing good for Ukraine, uh, not only for Ukraine itself, but generally because it kind of um, shifts focus in Turkey's foreign policy from its Western um, orientation, the cooperation with NATO and other countries and so on. Uh, however problematic they might have been recently, but still to this kind of Eurasianist agenda, regional powers, Astana platform and so on. And you remember all these comments from the Germany Ministry, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs about the photo of Erdogan with um, his counterparts from Russia and Iran. Uh, someone in Ukraine, and that I would say that's a majority of experts and uh, commentators would say that obviously Turkey has its own agenda because Turkey is in this region and Turkey has all these multiple uh, problems, including uh, necessity to coordinate, if not cooperate, but coordinate its actions in many different uh, regional conflicts where it's involved together with Russia, but on the different sides of barricades, uh, starting from Syria and Libya to Nagorno-Karabakh and many others. And of course, there is this dependency on energy resources. Uh, let's us not forget that Russia has been weaponizing everything. So in case of Turkey, that would not only be weaponizing of wheat and grain and all these kind of uh, food supplies, leading to this uh, skyrocketing food inflation in Turkey as well. But that's also about weaponizing energy resources and sometimes just cutting off gas coming to Turkey via the Blue Stream or the Turk Stream saying, well, you know, we have these maintenance works here and there. But then just a couple of uh, months, actually less than one year, uh, in the wake of uh, general elections, that's not something Turkey wants to face and to experience this winter, right? And that's also uh, true about refugees. Uh, just remember how Russia was actually blackmailing the, the whole world in the United Nations Security Council, saying that it can just uh, cut off um, the corridors for uh, humanitarian assistance coming from uh, the United Nations to the Syrian refugees, and that would mean another wave of refugees to Turkey, which is already hosting more than 5 million of refugees, and that's not something that people in Turkey are really happy about. So there are so many different leverages of over Turkey, which Russia uh, now has, and it can exploit, that it's really difficult to expect some kind of breakthrough. And We also know that Ukraine is quite unhappy uh, 
about the fact that uh, Russia is stealing all this grain and then selling it uh, in part to Turkey and via Turkey. Now, do you believe that that trade is still ongoing, that illicit trade? And if so, what is Turkey doing to stop it? Because we know that Ukraine has repeatedly asked the Turkish authorities to investigate uh, this theft, as it calls it, and to stop it. Well, that's a very unfortunate situation, and uh, that's been there for months and months. It's not something new. It started, I believe, uh, just in March, almost directly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the problem we have there is multifaceted because there are many different uh, um, violations of the international law and regulations at the same time. One is uh, accepting uh, uh, Russian vessels or any other vessels coming from the occupied ports of Crimea, uh, which is illegal because those uh, ports are under uh, sanctions and many of the vessels involved in this trade, by the way, are also under sanctions. And that is a package of sanctions which is related to the 2014 occupation of Crimea. So I think uh, there is also this uh, regulation of uh, 2017 of the Chamber of um, Shipbuilding Companies in uh, Turkey, and they uh, this regulation is very clear about not accepting uh, any ships coming from the occupied ports of Ukraine. So this uh, is a number one violation there. Second one is about the looted uh, grain and looted commodities which are shipped from Ukraine to Turkey, and that's kind of uh, uh, difficult to uh, prove because to prove that this grain is actually Ukrainian grain and not Russian uh, wheat or corn, you have to have some kind of DNA expertise or some kind of further investigation there. But uh, again, it's important to have a political will to do that. It's important to uh, pay enough attention to those problems because in case there is a will and desire to go deeper into details, there are multiple evidences provided by investigative journalists, not only Ukrainian, but also international. Uh, many uh, photo fixation videos, including from the satellites that actually show Mm, the same ships like uh, Mikhail Nenashev, Matros Koshka, um, and many others who uh, used to be uh, anchored in the uh, Crimean ports, and then they would go to, uh, let's say, Port of Kafkaz or somewhere showing they're going there, at least on documents, and then presenting these fake and false documents to the Turkish side. So unfortunately, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the same situation was going on even after multiple um, appeals and um, addresses from the Ukrainian side. Uh, but during these uh, grain talks and a uh, couple of days uh, into it, uh, we've witnessed um, decrease in these ships, and now many of them are just anchored in uh, in the ports of uh, Crimea and Sevastopol, for example, or in some others, just waiting, I believe, for what is going to happen next. And I think this is the very uh, right moment to actually hold the whole process, to stop it. And because there is no need, at least for this, uh, uh, whatever, emergent supplies of wheat and grain, uh, even though that cannot serve as a justification and legitimization of the crimes there. But now that we have 
partially at least unblocked the um, Ukrainian seaports. I think that uh, it's very important and crucial for the Turkish authorities to pay more attention to that, to uh, have those investigations, also not to lose credibility in the eyes of uh, Ukrainian people and international community. So my final question is about how Ukraine feels these days about Turkey. In the early days of the war, uh, it was like a love fest, uh, especially because of the Bayraktar drones. But we've seen over time that the enthusiasm has started to fade. Where are we now in that relationship between Turkey and Ukraine? And um, how important is Turkey's support? How important are the Bayraktars? Um, and how concerned is that over time, Turkey will sort of start pressuring Ukraine to end the war? Uh, well, let me start from the uh, last question. Uh, for Ukraine, it's not a question of uh, pressure or not pressure. There is no way uh, Ukraine is uh, going to accept any peace with Russia. Uh, I think we have to be clear about one fact that uh, Russia has to be defeated, uh, not appeased. Uh, it has never worked so far, and uh, I'm pretty sure it's not going to work just because if we let Russia get away with what it has now, with all war crimes there, tortures, uh, all kinds of um, violations of the international law and so on, we will have even bigger problems in the very near future, just as Russia get its forces uh, regrouped and then invade in Ukraine or any other country again. And that is also something that Turkey probably has to keep in mind, because for Turkey, I would say that uh, occupied Ukraine, or at least partially occupied Ukraine, or any kind of uh, strengthening of Russian positions in Ukraine, or military buildup in the Black Sea, which is uh, serving also as the power projection for the Mediterranean, which is crucial for Turkey, that is... Uh, a direct uh, threat to national security of Turkey itself. Uh, while we can, if not welcome, but at least understand Turkey's reluctance to join sanctions against Russia and to continue cooperation in economic sphere and in, in energy, and I think there is this understanding in Ukrainian society, then everything which is connected to military cooperation, technical cooperation, diplomatic and political agreements with Russia not taking into account Ukrainian interests, that is a threat not only to Ukraine, but to Turkey and to the Black Sea and European security generally. So I think in Ukraine, uh, there is still a positive, uh, of course, positive attitude towards uh, Turkish people, and Turkish nation, because we know that we have these long uh, connections coming from history, from the Ottoman Empire, when we were fighting against uh, Russians together. But on the other hand, there is also this expectation that uh, while we are paying attention to Turkey's sensitivities in many uh, issues, that we will have the same uh, sensitive attitude from Turkey. Um, I would very much like to see uh, President Erdogan's visit to Ukraine, uh, for example, because you know that we've had many uh, world leaders paying their visits of solidarity to uh, Ukraine so far. And the Ukrainian uh, prime minister actually visited Turkey after 2016 uh, events just to, to show our solidarity with the government and people of Turkey. 
And uh, I would probably like to see uh, addresses of President Zelensky for the Turkish parliament, uh, like we've seen in many other countries. So I think there are some uh, parts of this puzzle missing. And this is very important to keep our uh, nations together because Bayraktars is all good. We appreciate it. We appreciate closure of straits. We appreciate supplies of Bayraktar drones. But on the other hand, uh, there is much more to that. And I think it's really important not to lose this momentum, not only um, at the level of official dialogue, but also public perception, because this is something that will be very, very difficult to mend uh, if uh, it gets problematic at some point. Well, my dear Yevgenia, thank you for that brilliant tour d'horizon. It's always such a pleasure to speak to you, and I do very much hope that peace comes to your country very, very soon. Thank you, Amberine. It was great pleasure as always talking to you. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. brings us to the end of another episode of On the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed the program and do tune in later this week for another one that will be hosted by Al Monitor President Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for listening and goodbye.